on the night that Jesus was arrested in the garden, when the Jewish leaders had conspired against the Lord's anointed, Judas had betrayed him. On that night, Jesus' close friends and followers, they all left him and fled. Earlier that night, Jesus had foretold that this is exactly what would happen. He said, when they strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. It's such a sad night for so many reasons. We call it dark Gethsemane. There's rejection, betrayal, desertion, and denial. But in the midst of those promises that Jesus was giving his disciples the day of, before the arrest, he also gave them a single hopeful promise in the midst of them. He said, but when I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. I'll be raised up and I will meet you in Galilee. Yes, the king would be rejected, but the king would return and he would regather his scattered sheep to himself. He would restore those who abandoned him for a time. Not all, but those who were his, he would restore them. Even still today, he restores others, even while others still are hell-bent on resisting his reign in this world. In 2 Samuel 19 and 20, we find many primitive parallels to Jesus' rejection and return and restoration. With Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandfather back a thousand years before Jesus, King David, there was also a betrayal, a rejection. David's son turned against him and led most of the people away from him. But the king's rejection would not ultimately prevail. There was also to be a return and a restoration even while some were still bent on resistance. There are parallels. But I said there are primitive parallels because David was not the true and final king in God's plan and because he was not the ultimate king and Messiah that Jesus came to be. David's story of rejection and return and restoration well, it's more messy than Jesus's. It's more complicated. It's less beautiful. It's less encouraging. And there's less of a resolution. There are parallels, but not perfect parallels. Another way to put it is to think of the surety and shakiness of the king and his kingdom in the story of David. There's surety and shakiness. Because God was the one moving his plan along, there's surety. It is moving along. His kingdom cannot fail. His word will not return void. And none of his promises will fall. But because David was a sinner, and because his kingdom was not the ultimate kingdom of God, there was an ever-present seeming shakiness to the king and the kingdom. So keep in mind the surety and seeming shakiness of the kingdom as we read the first 10 verses of chapter 19 to get us started. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. 
For all the people heard that day. The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face. The king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth till now. And the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own house. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he's fled out of the land of Ab- from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? You see, in these ten verses, there's some surety and there's some shakiness. There's a kind of resolution that takes place. But there are remaining problems and hurdles with David's reign. The king has stopped his loud, distracting mourning. He has taken his place at the gate. The confusion and consternation among his men is quieted down. His general is no longer berating him. But there's still a long ways to go for the king's return and the people's reconciliation to him. David at this point is in Mahanaim, about 40 miles away from the capital city, Jerusalem. Yes, the lead rebel is dead, that's Absalom, and the rebellion is effectively squashed. But what about those who went away from the king and rebelled against the king? What now? Was David their king now again? And if so, how? Who will be reconciled to the true king and who will resist this king's rightful reign? Well, the answers to those questions are found in the rest of chapter 19 and 20. Chapter 19 primarily focuses on reconciling with the king, and chapter 20 primarily focuses on resistance to the king. Today, we'll focus on chapter 19 and then cruise through chapter 20. They're both showing us some very similar things at this time in the life and kingdom of David. If you look on the sermon notes page in the back of your bulletin, it might help you see the structure of these long chapters. You see, each of the chapters has four scenes to them, and there's a summary or a result at the end. So let's get into it. Chapter 19, Reconciling with the King. We've already read the first ten verses, and the rest of the chapter gives us some specific examples of reconciling with the king. 
The first is David and Judah. David and Judah, starting in verse 11. Let's read that. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Now this story is really confusing if you don't have one little piece of important information. And that's the difference between Israel and Judah. Has this confused you before? I'm not sure I got this right until I got to Bible college. So you shouldn't feel bad if you, if you don't know about this. You might know in verse 8, you might have noticed that Israel, it says, has fled every man to their own home. And now they're soon going to make plans to bring back the king. And then verse 11, David sends word to the elders of Judah to do the same. Now, Israel oftentimes in the Bible just means the whole nation, all the descendants that came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, back in Jacob's story, God started talking about 12 tribes that would come from Jacob and his 12 sons. If you fast forward a few books in the Bible... Once God's people got to the promised land, of those 12 tribes, 10 of them settled in the north. And sometimes they are called Israel. Israel could be the whole nation. Israel can be 10 tribes in the north. Two of the tribes settled in the south. And those two tribes are sometimes called Judah. And that's where David is from. He's from the south in Judah. And both Israel and Judah need to reconcile themselves to the king they've rebelled against. Not everyone in Israel, nor everyone in Judah has rebelled against the king. But the rebellion started in Judah, and it ended up later on in Israel. They both need to be reconciled to the king. And Israel was the first to act on it. But David is of Judah. And so David seeks out the men of Judah to bring him back as well. He's not escalating a rivalry between Israel and Judah. He wasn't being anti-Israel or Judah preferential. He was actually trying to unite these two groups. And that's not easy. That's not easy to unite these long historic factions in the kingdom. To unite those who rebelled against the king with those who remained faithful to the king to unite two armies, in essence. That's a precarious situation. And that's why David appointed Amasa as head over the new army. Who is Amasa? Well, Amasa had been the general of Absalom's army, the rebellion army. He was also David's nephew. 
Joab has been David's general for many, many years. That is the one general David has known. And for better or worse, he has been David's general. So with this transition to Amasa as the head of the new army, it effectively displaced Joab. It didn't demote him, it displaced him. We don't read about Joab having any role until in the next chapter, he reinserts himself into the story. So can you imagine if after the U.S. Civil War, President Lincoln had replaced General Grant, the general in the north, with Robert E. Lee, the general of the south. That'd be shocking. It probably wouldn't work. It probably wouldn't bring unity. But that was the primary purpose for which David put Amasa as head over the army and removed Joab. It may also be that David was punishing Joab for executing his son, as we saw last week. But we're not told that explicitly. David, in these days, was preoccupied with mending fences, with bringing unity and restoration to God's people. And for now, this strategy seemed to be working pretty well. Verse 14 says, all the men of Judah, as one man unified, they said, oh, return, king, you and all your people. They had been on the other side of the Jordan in recent chapters. That river that Joshua crossed, that fateful day with all the people of Israel, when they first entered the promised land, remember that momentous thing of crossing the Jordan? So you got to understand there's some significance that when he is in exile and David flees from Absalom and goes to the other side of the Jordan, it's like a deconquest. It's an undoing of the conquest. It's an exit from the promised land, not an entrance into the promised land. And now here in chapter 19, with the meeting of the king and these men of Judah at the Jordan to bring back the king into the land, it's almost like a a symbolic re-entry, a new conquest. So they brought the king back. Judah did Israel may have been the first to have the idea of reconciling and returning with the king, but Judah is now leading the way, and that's at least partly a good thing. Judah is reconciled to its king. Secondly, there's David and Shammai. David and Shammai. Before David crosses the Jordan, heading back home, he has three more encounters The first is David and Shammai. We were first told about Shammai back in chapter 16 of this book. He was that vile reviler, that stone thrower, that mud flinger. He cursed David and his men for miles and miles and miles. He tirelessly cursed, berated, insulted, mocked, and brought down God's curses, he thought, upon David and his men. Now, in the Old Testament, that was a capital offense to revile God's anointed. But David endured it. He endured it. No doubt when it was all said and done, Shimei probably thought that Team David would be on the losing end of this civil war. He thought he knew the mind of God and the plan of God and that David soon wouldn't be in the plan of God. Oh, but he was wrong. 
the battle went the other way. So now what? What would you do if you were Shammai? Well, let's read verse 16 and following. And Shammai, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shammai, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And said to the king, let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I've sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Shammai came, seemingly humble. He came confessing what he did. He acknowledged it as sin. Familiar words to David, no doubt. I have sinned. David once said those very words when he was confronted with great sin. And the Lord forgave him. Perhaps that's influencing David's thinking here. We know that in David's case, his confession, I have sinned, was sincere. It was true repentance. And though Shammai says the same thing here, I'm not sure Shammai had anything more than just worldly regret and covering his butt going on. It's subtle, but I think it's there. He minimizes what he did when he says, please let not the king take to heart what I said. Don't think it really meant anything. Don't, don't take it to heart like it was true. He commends himself in verse 20. Behold, I've come to you as the first of the tribes of Joseph. He comes with a thousand men, a thousand Benjaminites of the tribe of Saul. A thousand Saulites are on his side, and he's leading them to David to reconcile with him. Now, David's primary objective in these days, again, is not justice. It's not execution, but reconciliation, peace, and a uniting of God's fractured people. This was to be a day of celebration as they crossed the Jordan, not a day of judgment. So David rebukes Abishai in verse 22, and he grants mercy to Shimei in verse 23. The same words the prophet spoke to David a while ago, you shall not die. Let's hold off thinking about what to make of this. Let's keep working our way through it. With third, David and Mephibosheth. David and Mephibosheth, verses 24 to 30. Remember Mephibosheth, that crippled descendant of Saul 
whom David chose to bless with the full inheritance of King Saul. That was back in 2 Samuel 9. And there David put a man named Ziba in charge of Mephibosheth's house and household and land and homes. Well, we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 16 that Ziba showed up while David was out in exile and he had a story to tell him about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, he said, stayed back in Jerusalem at the palace and didn't follow you because he's really conspiring to get a corner of this kingdom for himself. After all, royalty is in his blood. David decided immediately upon hearing that, that all the wealth of Saul that he first gave Mephibosheth would be taken from Mephibosheth and given to Ziba instead. We suspected back then that Ziba was lying to get his master's estate. Well, now in chapter 19, we already read, Ziba is there at the banks of the Jordan. He showed up with a thousand, thousand Benjaminites. And now in verse 24, Mephibosheth shows up as well. Well, this should be interesting, huh? At least I think so. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Mephibosheth is a model of humility and grace and selflessness. And so we should think there's very good reason to believe his story and not Ziba's. It had raised suspicion that Mephibosheth didn't go with David out of Jerusalem, but remained in the royal palace even as Absalom took it over. And that's why, with, David's, uh, with Ziba's testimony back a few chapters ago, David questions Mephibosheth here at this reunion. But just take a look at Mephibosheth's appearance. While David was in exile, Mephibosheth lived as though he too was in exile. No grooming, no washing, no changing. It's as if he was in mourning because the king was booted from the throne and on the run. It was a small gesture to not wash, to not clip, to not comb, to not clean or change but it would have been a public one it would have even been a risky one to do in the palace of Absalom 
Besides, it was the best he could do. He wanted to go. He asked Ziba to get him a donkey. Somehow, Ziba didn't get him a donkey and then went and slandered him to King David. David decides to return half of the inheritance to Mephibosheth. And it isn't clear why. Did David think that both were being dishonest? Did David just not want to bother with the work of getting to the bottom of these two different stories? I've handled some conflicts with kids in, in my home quite like this. What, you're going to fight over that? How about I'll rip it in half and you both have half? Was David making a decision where it would be the least amount of risk? Where... No one could really be all that angry? I suspect so. I suspect it was a quick, pragmatic decision to remove, to remove whatever threat or conflict or drama could ensue. It gave a resolution, but there was no justice. The truth was never discerned. There was no restitution. There was no punishment David swept it under the rug for efficiency's sake. And yet Mephibosheth models humility and grace even more after the decision. Oh, let him take it all since my Lord the King has come safely home. That's what he cares about. His excitement for the King's return, dare we say, for the King's resurrection of sorts. That's what puts everything else into perspective for him. That is primary. Everything else is secondary. The treasures of this world pale in comparison to the hope and truth of the king's safety and arrival. Christians, don't we have much to learn from Mephibosheth here? Isn't there much to imitate in Mephibosheth? Oh, don't not groom. Clip your nails, comb your hair, wash your body, and change your clothes every now and then. But do put things in perspective. Jesus is risen. He is alive. And in some ways, nothing else matters. Because of it, in some ways, nothing else matters. Jesus is coming again. He will return. And in some ways... Nothing else matters. Fourth, there's David and Barzillai. Barzillai. And here, there is no reconciliation that's needed. Barzillai already proved his great loyalty to David during the days of the rebellion when David was exiled. It was at the end of chapter 17 when David and his men came to Mahanaim Out in the wilderness, no food, weary from the travel and from the threat. They were hungry there. And three wealthy men showed up with rich provisions. Beds, water, kingly-like food. And Barzillai was one of those three men. Now he comes to meet the king again. Verse 31. Let's read on. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Regalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. 
He provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Chimham, likely his son. Let him go over with my lord the king. And do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me I will do for him. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. Old Barzillai was honored to be invited to go back with King David to Jerusalem and to the royal palace. But he was old. His body was failing. He didn't know how many years he had left. It's not just the journey, but just wanting to die in your own bed, to be near the the graves of mom and dad. He asks if his son can go in his place, and David agrees with that. And then there's a sweet departure. The old king and the old man, they kiss, they hug, they say goodbye. It seems as though that there's an escalation of sweetness and devotion in these encounters with David. I mean, you have Shimei who covers his butt and gets the mercy that he's hoping for, but there's no justice. It's swept under the rug. There's Mephibosheth, where again, justice is not met, and the truth is not fully discerned, and yet Mephibosheth is his own beautiful model of grace and selflessness and godliness. And then it sort of culminates with Barzillai, who rightly wants to die in his own bed, doesn't want to be a burden to the king, wants his son to be blessed by the presence of the king. There's peace and friendship and affection. I think it shows us different kinds of reconciliation that was going on in these days. Some didn't need to be reconciled. They already were. Some needed reconciliation and got it, but under strange terms. On the whole, we can be encouraged at what's good in what we've read so far while acknowledging that this is all very imperfect, isn't it? I mean, there's stuff that's missing. There's reconciliation and peace, but sometimes without cost or even without righteousness. At times in the story, David is mending fences with paper mache. And we sinners, at times, that's the best we can do. And yet we long for more. And yet whatever that's good that's there is enough to move the story along. It doesn't stop here. They're marching to Zion for crying out loud. 
It's at this point that they finally crossed the Jordan. Verse 39, they crossed the Jordan. The king went over the Jordan, and the king went on to Gilgal. Like crossing the Jordan was symbolic for the conquest. So Gilgal is a place of special significance. In the days of Joshua, right after they crossed the Jordan, they set up camp at Gilgal. They set up memorial stones there at Gilgal. They renewed the covenant before the Lord that day at Gilgal. In 2 Samuel 11, Samuel the prophet brought the people of Israel down to Gilgal to preach to them, to pray for them, to renew the covenant together. It was there that they anointed Saul as their first king. It didn't go so well, but it was a hopeful day. There's a reason they went to Gilgal, a place of new beginnings. And that's where David and the men of Judah find themselves reunited at Gilgal. It looks hopeful. And yet the pendulum swings the other way again. Verse 12. And Amasa lay, oh, my notes are way out of order here. Hit pause, shuffle notes. You'll be the better for it, I'm sure. And I definitely will. Verse 40, rather. Verse 40, look at the second half of verse 40. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relatives. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. What's the result of all this reconciliation, attempted anyway? Well, there's still very much a divided kingdom. A divided kingdom and the division is growing. What a pathetic squabble right there at Gilgal. What should have been a reunion, what should have been a celebration, what should have been a coronation turned into a shoving match on the playground of Gilgal between grown men. Because there was unequal representation. All the men of Israel, of Judah rather, were bringing the king on his way. Only half the men of Israel were bringing the king on his way. That's not literal. It probably means half of the representatives or all of the representatives or something like that. But the men of Israel protested. The men of Judah have begun this escort hastily before the rest of their guys could get there. The men of Judah bicker back. David's our relative. He's our close relative. And that was true. But it was also divisive. David wasn't part of the kingdom's king. He was all the people's king. He was bone and flesh. With Israel and Judah, David said so in 2 Samuel 5. The men of Israel retorted that they were the first to have this idea. 
And besides, there are 10 of their tribes, only two of yours. We own about 80% of this king. You only 20%. In the end, the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. You see how it all escalates. Despite David's best efforts, there was a rift down the middle of God's people. And what's worse, this heated division between Israel and Judah here in our chapter is just a foreshadow. In 1 Kings 12, in Solomon's day, that rift will become permanent. There'll be a dividing of the kingdoms. Israel in the north, Judah in the south, each with their own king, each with their own agenda, at times each with their own religion. David was holding the family, the kingdom together with paper mache, paper mache that wouldn't last in Solomon's day, and yet the kingdom is still sure. His kingdom will not fail. Praise God. But the son of David, Jesus, he came. He said, something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was that great pinnacle king by 1 Kings 11. He was also the king that let the division, the permanent division of God's people happen. Something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus came to unite not just a fractured Israel but a whole humanity, a whole new humanity. He came to bring the impossible. He came to do what David could not do. David couldn't change hearts. Only Jesus can. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. Let's move on to chapter 20, which, as I said, we'll cruise through now compared to chapter 19. Chapter 20 emphasizes resisting the king. And once again, there are four turns in the story. The first is Sheba's rebellion. In days of disunity, this kind of stuff grows up. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Now we'll find out that this Sheba rebellion peters out quite quickly. It looks impressive though right here. All Israel forsook the king and went back home. It looks like the kingdom's in the balance. It looks like it's teetering on the edge. It looks like this is Absalom's revolt, take two, inevitably leading to a civil war. But before we get too far with Sheba, the writer puts that on hold and turns attention to David's return to the royal city. Secondly, David's return. When David arrived at the palace, his first day back as king, he made two decisions, two moves, you could say. They're both telling. Here's the first move, verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, 
And the king took the ten concubines who he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Now on the one hand, this was necessary. David's son Absalom took these concubines for himself. He slept with them as a symbol that he had apprehended the throne from his father. So what else could be done but that these women were put aside, provided for, protected, yes, but put aside. And yet it's not just necessary, this is sad. This is David's first move back in his second uh, time in office. It's so sad. What Absalom did with these concubines, what David had to do with these concubines when he returned was all part of the chastisement that David was facing for the sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. Here's the second decision that David made upon his return to Jerusalem. It's to take the rebellion of Sheba seriously. Verse 4 and following. And the king said to Amasa, his new general, call the men of Judah together with me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that, he had, that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's man, men and Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now remember, Joab, the former general, he's been shelved. He's been replaced with the general of Absalom's army, Amasa. And it's him who David charges with gathering the troops to go put out a revolt. And that needs expediency, right? You, won't, you don't want a, a revolt to grow. You don't want a coup to, to, to flourish. It, it happened so fast with Absalom, David might say. We, we must make sure it doesn't happen like that again. Give him three days to get troops and get back here. We're not told why, but Amasa wasn't able to get the troops he needed, perhaps because of divisions in God's people, perhaps because of a lack of support now for David for a time, or maybe because of Amasa's incompetence. Surely Joab would have made the deadline. But David turns not to Joab, but his next ranking officer, Abishai, he sends him out. And here we have David's first day in office in Jerusalem. Notice what's missing about the king's return to the royal palace in Jerusalem. There's no parade. It's lonely. There's no coronation. There's no celebration. There's that sad act of hiding away concubines to live like widows the rest of their lives. There's the rebellion rising up around Sheba, a son of Saul. There's a new general that can't get troops quick enough. And David's only hope now is Abishai. But thirdly, there's Joab's reversal. 
There's Joab's reversal. There's been no mention of Joab since we learned that he'd been shelved by the king. King David didn't look to him when Amasa didn't come through, but he looked to Abishai. No mention of him, and then he inserts himself into the middle of verse 8. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on his thigh. Remember, this is a fired former general. Why is he still wearing the uniform? This isn't like a guy who got fired from the office and still wears his business suit to the park every day to feed pigeons. But almost, the only difference is that Joab is more aggressive than that. He always has a plan. And usually it's treacherous and bloody. So verse 9, Joab said to Amasa, they meet, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's left hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Do you see the sneakiness and treachery? Coming with peace, asking if he's well, reaching out an empty right hand, which, if he was going to do him harm, would presumably be in that right hand the weapon would be but it's an empty right hand he reaches out he grabs the beard he pulls him in for a kiss that's weird for us but in their day apparently that was okay (laughs) and you can see why bring him in for the kiss left hand underneath to the gut and he's disemboweled and there he dies now Joab is back in charge of the army He inserts himself at the head of the army. Uh, Abishai, as for him, well, that's Joab's little brother. He's not going to resist. Big brother Joab, especially not after what he did to Amasa. Everyone saw it. At least everyone saw the after effect of his murder of Amasa. In verses 12 to 13, I won't read them, but What a scene it is. The army has to pass by a disemboweled Amasa. Many of those men would have had him as their general in the army. And here he is. This was David's general. He was the real general. And yet the one who used to be, the fired one, disemboweled the general and has taken over. It's such a scene and it caused such a... This causes such a commotion with the rubbernecking that they have to put the body in a ditch. It's a mess. And yet Sheba, remember him, the rebel, he's still out there. A rebellion might be brewing. Thankfully, later in chapter 20, we find out that the rebellion has quite died down. Basically, the only people with Sheba at this point are his clan, his extended family. And fourthly, we come to Sheba's ruin. In verses 14 to 22, I won't read them. It's fascinating reading, though. Read it later today before the Super Bowl starts. It's a great story, but in the end, really, all that matters is this. Sheba, the rebel, is dead, beheaded. In verse 22, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Like nothing happened. He ignored the king and his will and his ways. He took over the army. 
And that should be a scary thing to come back home to, right? Or come back home with, having done. It would be, unless you have a passive king, unless you have this king, King David. What's the result of all this? It's a mended kingdom. It's a mended kingdom when we come to verse 23. Joab's return to Jerusalem. He's back to the king. Read on. Verse 23 says, Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahulad, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jarite was also David's priest. It's mended. Oh, but the scars remain, and something's not right. Because there's a similar summary of appointments back in chapter 8. These usually come at the end of a, a scene when there's conflict, and then there's some sort of resolve or restoration. These lists of appointments, of order and structure and offices, give the impression of some peace in the kingdom, some rest that's happened. It's now come to a resting point. The kingdom's mended, but something's not right because there are a couple important differences between the lists of appointments in chapter 8 and the one we just read in chapter 20. For instance, the one in chapter 8 begins with this, which isn't in chapter 20. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. Now in chapter 20, David is certainly the king, but it's not worth mentioning. Joab's top of the list, not David. In chapter 20, it not only doesn't mention David, but doesn't say that he administered justice and equity to all his people like he did back in chapter 8. You can't say that here and now because he's not doing that. And then in chapter 20, there's also this addition to what was in chapter 8. A new category, forced labor. Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. That'll actually be key in the final division between Israel and Judah in 1 Kings 12. Solomon's forced labor. Like the kings of the nations, David was more and more acting. He's on his throne. Yes, Absalom and Sheba, they're dead. But so is Amasa. The general is out of control. There are pockets of reconciliation, but many things are just patched up and papered over. There's surety, but shakiness in the kingdom. And remember I said, praise God that Jesus, the true son of David, the final king, and God himself one day, he came and he introduced himself at times by saying, something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon who had so much peace. Solomon who divided the kingdom. The kingdom of God in the time of Jesus, it looked shaky 
and teetering at times. That night when Jesus was arrested and betrayed and denied and all the disciples fled, it looked like the kingdom of God could not have been coming to earth. It looked shaky. Remember, Jesus promised that he would rise from the dead and he would meet them in Galilee. He would restore them. He would regather the scattered sheep. And that's exactly what he did. And here we are today, 2,000 years later. Jesus has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. At times, this church feels shaky to me. At times, the church of Jesus Christ in America feels shaky to me. The gospel at times, it's advanced in this world. Sometimes it it feels shaky. It feels like you don't know how it's going to go. And we don't. But it's sure. It's always sure. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And as he builds that church, it's it's not just Israel. Even a united Israel or a purified Israel. It is the Israel of God, of the elect from Jews and Gentiles, from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can bring this band of misfits together in this room. right? With all of our differences, with all of our oddities, he brings us together. He's making one new man. There's no longer Jew or Greek or male or female or slave or free. We're all one in Christ. One day in the new heaven and the new earth, unity and purity will be so sweet and so unthinkable. It'll be like a lion eating together with a lamb. It'll be like a boy playing with a cobra. That's what Isaiah tells us. Unthinkable. Impossible. We're not there yet but we have a seedling of it right now. Let's protect it. Let's pursue it. Let's pray for it. Let's encourage each other in it. At times, let's say to a a Yodia or a Syntyche, like Paul did in Philippians 4, lazy ladies, get along. Get along in the Lord. And you over there, you help them get along. We need to get along. Even more than that, we need to love each other. This is what Jesus bought us. This is what this king is all about. Christian, do you hear from all this how important unity in this body is and how dangerous and destructive disunity in the body of Christ is? It's counter the blood of Christ and the purposes of God in this world. God, help us. Let us be humble. Let's reconcile truly. Not sweeping things under the rug, but because we've been forgiven and reconciled to our God. And because we have that in common, we can stay reconciled to each other. We can pursue reconciliation until one day the lion and the lamb graze together and boys can play with cobras. Imagine that. Unthinkable. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for your glorious kingdom. We ask for your help to pursue unity and peace in the kingdom of the church of Jesus Christ, even this specific local body, the church. Help us to know with great confidence your kingdom cannot fail. 
that even if this church, this local body disintegrated, it threatens the building of the church of Jesus Christ not one bit. That is humbling and that is comforting. Make us one. Don't, don't take our church away from us, Lord, if it be your will. We know your kingdom would not be threatened or thwarted, but give us unity and peace and joy as we believe the gospel and praise the one who bought us as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.